Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. All right, welcome everybody to the Great Birth Rebellion. Today, B and I are finally getting to talk about small babies, big babies, or big babies, small babies, and where the plan is to talk about this for a while, and we're going to split it into two parts. So this will be part one of big babies, small babies, and then next week you'll hear part two. So hang tight. We kind of wanted to talk about them together because we're going to talk about ways of diagnosing baby size and reasons for induction and all those kinds of things. And regardless of whether the baby's small or big, it's usually the same strategy of how to measure them and what to do getting them out. So we kind of mashed it all together. I think I think I get like three messages a day yeah. from people getting induced because their baby's big. So this topic is very, very, very close to my heart and pelvic floor. All right. Well, we're going to kick off. So firstly. Because we're doing this because there's a heavy, heavy focus on the size of the baby in modern Western maternity care. The size of the baby is often a trigger that healthcare providers will use to recommend things like ultrasounds, induction of labor, cesarean section, or telling you your baby has to come early or adding extra monitoring or extra ultrasounds. So size creates extra interventions in the space of your pregnancy care. So it's kind of important to know, okay, is this justified intervention and justified concern or is there a massive overreaction from maternity care providers about baby size? I don't even feel like they need a spoiler alert because that's why they come to this podcast. Let's get into it now. Yeah, let's get into it. So we'll look at the research on how the size of the baby, or they call it fetal size. I mean, I always call the babies babies, but how the size of the baby is determined and at the accuracy and the, 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 the legitimacy. The legitimacy. Who's been partying all weekend? Oh, my gosh. I was <laughs> at a birth this morning. I have a little bit of an excuse. Oh, um, <laughs> so Jason <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, we'll look at the reasons. For, uh, yeah, anyway. All right, let's get started. So what what's a small baby? Small babies, they consider anything below 2.5 kilos. And when I was an early midwife, over 4.5 was considered to be a big baby. But the research now is saying, well, a lot of things are saying four kilos is considered a big baby. So why did that change? Because 4.5 is still considered macrosomic and it's still considered, so macrosomic meaning macro meaning big, so macrosomic meaning a big baby, is still clinically defined if I'm, Mm. I feel like I'm correct on this because I've looked it up recently, on the mothers and babies report as 4.5. Yes, but the ACM guidelines and a lot of the research now is classifying babies over four kilos as uh large for gestational age and certainly with all of the shoulder dystocia research and things for bigger babies in adverted commas they're looking at research from four kilos as the upper limit it seems to have changed 
um a lot of the research like, talking about four that's going to affect that's going to affect the flow affect the flow and effect for everything there's a lot of stigma around babies being big too it's just not okay like then i want a justification from whoever thinks that it's all right to change these classifications well this seems to be it because in my head it was four kilos but definitely with the new acm guidelines which i'm about to pull up right now contacting your friends at acm to figure out what find out why yeah because it's not i don't think in the mothers and babies report so in the acm guidelines uh if macrosomia is suspected so over four kilos it's a category c which means refer on so they're saying if you oh, oh. suspected category I feel like you're going to need to mute me for this because I'm just going to get I oh, just, just I get really angry. I know. So that's where we're up to. That's where we're up to with large babies. They're calling babies over four kilos macrosomic and large for gestational age. So that's the terms. Those are the terms. Uh, so two point five below two point five is small for gestational age. Over four is large for gestational age. And there's another classification, intrauterine growth-restricted babies, so IUGR babies, which that's different. That's a small baby, but all of the proportions of its growth are out. So you can see things like big heads but small bodies or, yeah, so it's actually IUGR, the intrauterine growth restriction, is actually a, like a, it's a clinical problem rather than just a small baby. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, it's just I'm mad from the onset. That's just I'm going to say a definition should still be 4.5. There is no, you, you can't just change that. Then everything changes. I think they've changed it around the shoulder dystocia research. So that's what we're going to talk about at the end of like what everyone's worried about. To then prove their point that big babies cause shoulder dystocia. Oh, if we make it 500 grams smaller, then we'll have more shoulder dystocia babies to be able to classify. So then we can prove that it's an issue. I think it was the other way around. Like they kind of like, oh, there's really high, much higher rates in babies above four kilos compared to, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. But what about babies above 4.5? Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Tell me. All right. So, how do you determine the size of a baby? So, from a midwifery perspective, at first point of care, then we do what's called a symphysis pubis measurement, or whatever they call it. Basically, it's a fundal height. You measure from the top of a woman's fundus, so the top of where you can feel her uterus, down to her pubic bone. And this is part of routine midwifery care. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the accuracy of it because I do remember talking to a midwifery colleague who was like, is there any actual research around fundal height? Like, why do we do this? What's the research? So the research says that it can detect either a very small baby or a very large baby, but only 50% of the time is it accurate. So 50% of very big or very small babies are missed. So if they're under the what we call 10th centile or over the 10th centile, 50% of those babies are missed if you just use fundal height alone. That's the accuracy of it. But we as clinicians can increase the accuracy of this technique of measuring the baby from fundus to pubis. And because less experienced midwives have a higher level of inaccuracy, so when they looked at some of the research, it can get as low as 17 to 30% in inexperienced midwives. 
But with experienced midwives, they found it can get up to as accurate as 88% of the time, midwives accurately detecting a a very large or a very small baby. So first, clinician's experience makes a difference to how effective this particular technique is. The other thing that adds to its accuracy is if the same clinician is doing it each time. So if you have continuity of care and there's the same midwife measuring your fundal height every single time, we can consider that measurement a more accurate measurement than if it was somebody different because everyone does it slightly differently. And the idea of this technique of measurement is to get a record over time of how your baby's growing rather than a single event of measurement being kind of accurate to determine a big or small baby. It has to be done over time and plotted kind of on a chart in a way. And fundal height very casually, very loosely correlates to gestation. So if I measure your fundus and you're 30 weeks pregnant and you're measuring 30, that seems to be a bit of a mid-range. The Australian College of Midwives guidelines suggest that three centimetres above or three centimetres below your gestation is still considered normal, a normal fundal height. So if you're 30 weeks pregnant and you're measuring 33, that's still within normal. And if you're 30 weeks pregnant and you're measuring 27, still considered a normal fundal height that doesn't trigger us to recommend any further assessment of the size of the baby. The fundal height can also be less accurate if the woman's carrying some extra weight, so bigger girls, or obviously if there's two babies in there or the baby's not in a position that's up and down. So if it's transverse, so lying sideways, yes. So to increase the accuracy, if you standardize the technique for how to do fundal measurements, so uh, the standard technique and the way we sort of should be doing it in adverted commas is you start the measurement from the top of the fundus and you bring it down to the pubic bone and you do it with the tape measure facing down so you can't see the numbers. It's considered a more accurate way of doing it. Uh, And obviously the more you do it, the more experienced you get and then trying to keep your technique regular and similar and then for midwives to be offering continuity of care. That's when a woman would get the most benefit out of a symphysis pubis measurement in terms of accuracy. Can I just add in a little hot tip for all the student midwives um, and and new midwives doing this? Always ask the person who's pregnant to locate their own pubic bone. It's so much nicer and it gives them so much more power of their body um, for them to locate it and then for you to then find it rather than poking around. That's for any care provider that doesn't currently do that. It's just a really nice thing for the person who's pregnant. Top tip, yeah. So basically the current research we've got on it is that there's actually not a a lot of research on the accuracy of it, but because it's an easy, low-cost tool that can be applied by midwives in any setting really in most, depending on the country, but in most under-resourced or highly resourced countries, this is a really easy strategy and it's been proven that when midwives are good at it and the model is effective, like continuity of care, it can be a useful clinical tool. It's also the expected professional standard. So actually, even if there wasn't any research as midwives, we would be expected to to do a fundal height each time we see the woman. Yeah. 
That's all I have to say about fundal height. So that's one thing you should be getting. Uh, what I have actually noticed is if you're having obstetric care where the obstetrician has access to an ultrasound in their rooms and that every time you go, they actually put an ultrasound on instead of putting their hands on you, uh, that's not an evidence-based way. So you're, regardless of access to ultrasound, your care provider should still be putting their hands on your belly to get a feeling for the size of the baby and the position and also measuring with a tape measure as the very first level of screening for the size of your baby. Yeah, and the last ultrasound you should have routinely should be done at 18 to 20 weeks, which is the morphology ultrasound. So every single person that I speak to that has private obstetric care has had an ultrasound at every appointment um, because those ultrasounds aren't evidence-based. They are not recommended in the National Antenatal and Pregnancy Guidelines. And what the research shows us is that more ultrasounds often, more often than not, leads to more interventions, which is what we're now going to talk about. And that ultrasounds don't come without harm. Yes. So it might just feel really harmless. It might just be like, oh, I'm just going to see your baby today. But the doctors aren't just looking at the baby's face like you are. Yeah, and that's what I think gets missed as well, is that not only have we added the ultrasound, but you've actually taken away the hands-on check of the size of the baby and position of the baby and the fundal height measurement, which is the first si- like the first level of assessment that should be attended. And then if that's unusual, then you move on to the next option of, of ultrasound as the next possible screening option. But most private obstetricians replace the fundal height for the ultrasound, yeah. which is not evidence-based or recommended to be routine. Correct. And I think fundal height too is something that everyone can understand. So if I said to my client who's 30 weeks, oh yeah, your fundal height is 30 centimetres, I've already explained to them like this is the normal range for things. They in their mind go, well, I'm 30 weeks, I'm measuring 30 centimetres. You know, this is one of the ways we can tell the size of the baby. I'm feeling good about the size of my baby. Whereas not everybody women can't look at their ultrasound and sort of go oh yeah I can see when you if the obstetrician or whoever's doing the ultrasound says oh this is a big baby that's only information that the clinician has access to the woman doesn't have the information to be able to properly decipher whether or not that's a truthful uh, interpretation of that ultrasound and so I think Fundal height really can is so accessible to women. And, and you know, like if I, I had did have a client who had a very, very high fundal height and, you know, and I said to her at 38 weeks, oh, you know, your fundal height's 44. And she went, oh, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do now that we found that? She immediately understood what I understood. And so I feel like it's just a like a, a way of actually giving women some knowledge and authority over what's going to happen rather than an ultrasound which holds back all the information to the clinician and isn't really accessible to the woman. So then if we move on from fundal height, the next way that we can determine the size of babies is through ultrasound. So the research on this says that an ultrasound is accurate 70% of the time. So if you ultrasound 100 babies, 
70 of those will receive what's considered an accurate weight estimation. The problem is, is that the the acceptable accuracy of an ultrasound for weight and size is within 10%. So if you have an ultrasound and they say, okay, your baby is four kilos, the margin of error on that is 10% plus or minus 10%. So your baby who's who on ultrasound is four kilos could be 4.4 kilos or could be 3.6 kilos. And that's considered an acceptable margin of error for a growth scan. So 70% of the time they can get the baby's weight within plus or minus 10% of its actual it's generally six to 900 grams when you're looking at a term baby. Right, correct. 600 to 900 grams ish. Difference, the That's range. A, yeah, yeah, it's quite a lot. So <laughs> a 3.6 kilo baby's normal, but if they say your baby is four kilos, we need to do something, but your baby comes out and it's actually 3.6 kilos. To them, that's an acceptable margin of error. They are saying we can estimate 70% of babies within 10% plus or minus. So I don't think that's, that's accurate. accurate. That's considered accurate. Yes, so that's the- what accuracy is in today's yeah. modern world. And, so, I, you know, yeah. we've all, so 30% is inaccurate. So yeah. they have to be largely out, right? So By more than 10%. You can see, and so what they'll, if someone says to you, yes, they're accurate 70% of the time, they are accurate 70% of the time, but their definition of accuracy is plus or minus 10%. So, you know, if you're happy with that level of accuracy, I wouldn't, I'm not happy with it. And spoiler alert, the research says that's not a good enough level of accuracy to be using ultrasound as a clinical decision-making tool. Yeah, so two-thirds of the time they can accurately diagnose the size of your baby, but within plus or minus 10%. And the other 30% of the time, so two in only two in three babies can be accurately sized, accurately. So the research is not in favor because of these, the inaccuracies, the research is not in favor of routine growth scans for women who are, are at low risk of a very small or a very large baby. So when they, they've actually looked at this because Actually, during COVID, where there was a lot less face-to-face midwifery care and a lot less maternity care, I noticed that hospitals and clinicians were throwing growth scans at women as a kind of alternative to a maternity care check. Like, well, at least we can all give them a 36-week ultrasound and maybe we'll, you know, catch something we missed by not caring for them earlier than that. Uh, But they had a look at the stats and routinely giving everyone a third trimester ultrasound didn't improve outcomes at all, but it does increase intervention as a result of what they find. So if so, they applied an inaccurate ultrasound to all women, then they started acting on these inaccurate results. So, wow, your baby is too small, we should induce you to get it out, or your baby is too big, so we should induce you to get it out. So these growth scans increased intervention but didn't improve any outcomes. So the research on it suggests that it's it's actually a wasteful use of a resource. It's not cost-effective. And to expect every single pregnant woman to somehow be able to access an ultrasound at 36 weeks is considered an unreasonable level of maternity care 
considering it hasn't actually demonstrated itself to improve any sort of outcomes. So we really should be saving this technology for women who actually need it and who actually might benefit rather than just doling out ultrasounds to every single woman and multiple ultrasounds of pregnancy like this. Women who actually need ultrasounds have trouble getting in on time, probably because we're overusing this tool to women who don't actually need it. And it's not even accurate. So we have national antenatal guidelines um, that have been agreed upon um, and are released through the department, like the, the National Department of Health, and they state that there shouldn't be any, you should have routinely that 20-week ultrasound should be the last one. So they're not included in there. And I've never, ever seen evidence to support them. And so all of these stats that I'm giving you, this is all based on actual research papers, which if you're on the mailing list, you'll get access to in the resource folders. So don't just take my word for it. Feel free to read all this. All these stats are just plucked from actual papers. So... Yeah, so basically what we know is we cannot, there's actually no way that your clinician can accurately tell you if you have a very large or a very small baby, so below 2.5 or above 4 kilos, uh, until your baby's out. So if you've gotten the word from your care provider that your baby's so big it's not going to come out, so maybe we should do a cesarean section, or your baby's so big we're worried about its growth that we want to bring it out early, just know that no one, doesn't matter how good they are, can accurately determine the exact size of your baby. You know, you can ask questions, okay, what what does it mean for it to be accurate um, or how accurate is it? Um, and most ultrasounds actually will state it. They'll actually write it in the description. So you can always ask, can I have a look at the results that the sonographer or the formal ultrasound has provided to read the range? But the research is showing now what that level is ask the questions keep asking the questions until it's a full body yes for you to or or a full body or if it's a no and remember a maybe is always a no so if you're sitting there going hmm I feel like I need to ask a question please ask one um this is not a haircut this is your body and your baby this is the most important time in your life to speak up Um, even if it feels scary please speak up and if it does feel scary that's a beautiful red flag that you do not feel safe with your care provider and Mm -hmm. so many people when I have birth preparation chats with them will say oh I don't feel like I could ask them that if you don't feel comfortable when you're pregnant asking questions around your care then you are not going to feel comfortable and trust that care provider when you're in a vulnerable state, which is labour and birth. Totally. And, and you know, in this even um, something that ultrasound can potentially help with is if your baby is, if they say your baby is small for gestational age, that's one thing. That means all of the parts are small sort of equally. But if it's intrauterine growth restricted, which we're going to talk about the reasons why your baby could be small like this, The ultrasound results are still not accurate for weight, but they can give you measurements of the baby's head versus the baby's tummy versus the baby's leg length and all these things. So if your baby's head is on the 50th centile, but the rest of the baby's body is on the 10th centile, all the other way around, if there's some big major discrepancies, you might be looking at a growth-restricted baby 
rather than just a small baby. And growth restriction is pathological. So ultrasound might be helpful in that regard. But in terms of the actual weight, if the baby is growth restricted, the weight still doesn't matter because it's about the proportions of the baby. So we can't completely throw it out. But um, the the thought is, is that we shouldn't be making clinical decisions based on a single sort of growth scan, for example, doing a growth scan and saying, your baby's big, we're going to induce you, or your baby's small, we're going to induce you. It's not um, considered appropriate clinical decision making. And so there's there can be completely normal reasons for why your baby might be small or big. So even if someone says, right, you've got a small baby or you've got a big baby, let's look at the reasons why that actually might be completely normal and fine for you. So firstly, people of different ethnicities make different sized babies. So the standards are catered to a white Western demographic most of the time, unless you're looking at research and there are research papers that seek to create growth charts for all different ethnicities. And that's what we need to be working towards is individualized, unique growth expectations and size expectations for all different types of of, um, ethnicities. So it's really a fundamentally racist idea that everyone's baby should conform to a Western standard of normal. And if the babies don't fit this white Western idea of normal, then there's something wrong that needs fixing. And I know some people look at this and say, oh, gosh, Mel, that's not racist. But if you think... It's totally racist. It is. If you're not like us, then... Then Then it's wrong then you're wrong and you don't fit in. It's yeah, it's, it's the actual racism. definition. And so, we've been talking about having different growth charts for ages and yes. they've never come in. No, and if you're well, like in Australia, we've got a massive range of ethnicities and demographics and, you know, so if you deem something wrong because it doesn't conform to a dominant Western idea, then that disadvantages and it belittles what's true for people of other ethnicities and it demonstrates that racism. And it's actually built into the maternity care system. Like Mm -hmm. individual clinicians might not be personally racist, but by assuming that the white Western standard of baby size is correct, we are subconsciously upholding a racist approach to maternity care. It's not the only point of maternity care where this happens it happens in you know things like perineums and the pesiotomy rates and you know there's a lot to it that's right and so we can't we can't just apply this blanket like your baby's too small and your baby's too big because some ethnicities and some people will naturally make smaller babies some will naturally make bigger babies but we can't pathologize that against a western standard but so that's the other reason why you might make a smaller or larger baby is just genetics. Maybe your mum did or maybe your sisters did and you're just a healthy woman with a bigger or a smaller baby on board. Um, and some places call these, so there's a word, they're just constitutionally small or constitutionally large infants. And so there's a difference between, you know, small for gestational age necessarily and just constitutionally small. so that, But you can't work all this out until they're out. So those are sort of two reasons why it could just be normal because you're just a normal, well, healthy baby, uh, healthy woman and your baby's just 
was supposed to be smaller because of your genetics, because of the place you live, where you were born, and who your parents are. Uh, But there are abnormal or pathological reasons for why a baby. So we'll start with why a baby might be small. So um, if you smoke or use drugs or particular medications, having these, we know that these babies are smaller, Uh, particularly smoking during pregnancy periodically restricts blood flow through the placenta and so essentially kind of malnourishes the baby uh, in small increments over its gestation. And so they are statistically smaller babies for women who are smoking or using drugs or some particular medications that might have a similar effect. Passive smoking can have also have a similar impact, so which is why as clinicians we do ask women about passive smoking and it can impact upon uh, the size of the baby. And interestingly, there is actually research on how uh, smoke or nicotine or passive smoking impacts different ethnicities. So uh, black women seem to have a bigger impact upon their pregnancies if they've been exposed to secondhand smoke compared to white women. And so they've done this with a few different ethnicities in a few different locations and found that there can be the way that uh, different bodies retain the products of that you would inhale with passive smoking is different across races and cultures just because of our genetic makeup. And so, yeah, that was just. Do you think it's just because of genetic makeup though? Or do you think it's because typically people like Aboriginal women, Torres Strait Islander, um, African-American have, you know, the the burden of what they've experienced as a race, which typically leads them to having worse health outcomes. Like surely it's compounded. I'm sure it's compounded. But the the particular, I kind of stumbled across this research where it's like there's all these nuances of how we're genetically made up of how we respond to certain environmental things. And so, yeah, that was just something that I kind of went, oh, that's interesting. That, like, it, but it can affect people differently. So the issue is, is that we haven't really diversified research. We've, we've, we've kind of focused too, sh- like, smallly on, oh, that's not a word, shallowly. Anyway, narrowly. Narrowly. Yeah, focused. So that's one reason. We do this a lot in research, which is really tricky because it means most of the stuff that we find can't be generalised to the whole population. And some research tries, like when you're you're doing a research project, you will ask people their ethnicity and all that kind of thing. The problem is, is that then when research is applied in a clinical setting, they don't have five different guidelines. If you have, if you've identified that the demographic of your service, your maternity service area includes a high number of Iranian women and Indian women and Japanese women and Tongan women, for example, there's not four separate guidelines depending on. So even if the research is there, it's not being applied in a in a logical way. So, you know, that's the that's the issue with with systematic maternity care is that it's it does this one system and it's just it's supposed to be a blanket one size fits all but it's not true because we're all different so that's one reason why you could have a small baby for a pathological reason the other one that's kind of newish like I feel like in the last few years is um the increased use of nuchal translucency ultrasounds as a more routine test 
done between about 12 and 14 weeks. And it was traditionally marketed as a way of determining Down syndrome risk or genetic screening. They give you a risk, you know, ratio. But with this blood, they also do a blood test and they can give you a reading on what's called a PAP-A level. And it's a it's a placental hormone. So if you have a low PAP-A, so below 0.4, They've discovered that a low PAPE puts women at more risk of having growth-restricted um, babies, smaller babies. They're at higher risk of preterm birth and also preeclampsia. So there's something in that. And uh, sometimes they recommend that women, particularly if they've had repeat uh, multiple miscarriages or um, preterm births before or history of low birth weight babies, uh, if they identify a low PAPA on the nuchal translucency ultrasound, they will sometimes recommend routine use, like daily use of aspirin through your pregnancy. And that's thought to increase uh, blood flow through the placenta. So this PAPA somehow, and I'm not across it complete, like the physiology completely, but it can impact on the efficiency of blood flow through the placenta if the PAPE levels are low because it speaks to the quality of the placentation, like the implantation of the placenta. So that could be a thing. If you've got low PAPE and a history that you can draw on that kind of indicates that for some reason this is happening for you, that could be a pathological reason. So worth looking into. Women it's just more at risk though. Correct. More at risk. Accurate. It's more at risk, you know. And, and interestingly, so as well, risk, not saying you're going to have it again. Correct. This is where language is so important. Yeah, and I just think so much of what we're talking about today really messes with people's minds and hearts more than anything else. This is and what then they Get to the end of their birth and they weigh their baby and it was three point six kilos and it wasn't above four, and then they go, "Oh, I just got robbed. I got robbed of a really beautifully connected pregnancy and an epic birth." And maybe not, maybe that's not what they think. Maybe they're really grateful for everything that happened. But, and I guess, because I hear the birth trauma, right? This is what I'm getting. I'm not yeah. getting all the good stuff. I'm getting all the, the trauma. So I might be a bit skewed here. But so often people feel robbed and they feel robbed because they had a lot of unnecessary worry and intervention. And that's why Mel and I are here to try and decrease that more than anything. Because the Australian stats are not looking good in terms of induction rates oh, and yeah. cesarean and intervention rates and it doesn't make sense to us that they need to be this high and now as we're seeing the birth trauma rates they're finally getting published too and we're like okay what have we done and and the other thing with low pape is is because it's considered a risk factor then they recommend these serial routine growth scans right so the women are on so they got a low pape so they're at risk so then they're on aspirin which also you know, you're on a medicine for the whole birth then, for the whole pregnancy then. And then you're going in for these routine growth scans. Um, and so there's kind of just this heightened level of attention that, and you know, the minute they see something that's slightly untoward, they're like, well, see, see, it's an issue. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. So I've had clients, and, and I think it's more of an issue now because of the increased popularity of the nuchal translucency. When when I first started midwifery, it was kind of only women who were kind of considered at risk of genetic issues with their baby. So older women or women with a history or IVF pregnancies and things like that were actually encouraged to do the nuchal translucency screening. 
and other women who were young, healthy, you know, with with no particular risk factors were kind of confidently not getting those ultrasounds. But I think now we've got more women having information about their PAPA levels and so then there's more action and more interest in, you know, what do we do now? And so, yeah, for most of my career, we weren't even considering PAPAs and aspirin. And I've had clients, you know, who've gotten the nuchal translucency and then have decided to, one of them went on aspirin and so then declined the growth scans. The other one decided not to go on aspirin and accept all the growth scans because she chose not to go on aspirin. So, you know, it's not necessarily right or wrong to get the PAPE. I guess it gives you some information about your possible risk factors and then you can make decisions about how you want to act as a result. Um, Okay, so the next abnormal or pathological reason why your baby might be small is if you have high blood pressure through your pregnancy or preeclampsia or what we call HELP syndrome. So, again, these can be actually the root of them can be placental, which explains why the babies are at more risk of being small. And then they manifest as high blood pressure, preeclampsia and HELP syndrome and all these things. So it's, you know, which came first, we're not entirely sure, but could be placental based. Um, Placental insufficiency is another one. But again, that's usually a result of one of those conditions we just spoke about. It might not be in itself the things that started it. It might be the sim- a symptom of what's going on. But anything that reduces blood flow and activity of the placenta is going to impact the size and development of your baby. So that's that. Um, if the baby has a health condition, so that uh, a developmental abnormality or a congenital abnormality, that can impact their growth. So again, ultrasounds could tell you some of this. And some babies are born with syndromes, genetic syndromes that, you know, that take time to diagnose that we can't maybe not actually have a screening test for some more rare things. Um, a maternal... Yeah, I think it, it, we might have sounded like we were saying ultrasounds are generally bad. We're not saying that. They can actually be really epic in many many ways. I think what our biggest thing is that we were saying at the start is that they're not accurate for determining the size of the baby. I just really want to, because I think sometimes we can come across the saying everything's bad and we're not, we're definitely not saying that. No, they can be very, you know, your baby could be diagnosed with one kidney or a heart defect and all these things that are, that's a meaningful finding to make decisions on. And it's, you know, I think we, we have an issue with ultrasounds for specifically for growth rather than detecting more um, physical abnormalities but that can be we're talking about because it's a small and big baby episode um the other thing that can give you a small baby is a maternal infection such as syphilis toxoplasmosis um cmv so cytomegalovirus so if a baby's born very small or um, growth restricted we can do what's called a torch assay, I think it's called, or a torch test on the baby, which tests multiple um, viruses that can impact on the growth of a baby because of a maternal infection, because the mum got an infection during pregnancy. Um, And the other thing that can give you a small baby for a bad reason is uh, maternal malnutrition or calorie restriction and starvation. Like, so literally women who have... um, uh, eating disorders during pregnancy or that are calorie restricting in order to maintain an unrealistic 
weight level, um, or obviously in less resource countries, women who actually don't have enough food during their pregnancy impacts upon the size of your baby. So what we might do now is talk about what kind of interventions are offered to women who are diagnosed with smaller babies. And in the next episode, we'll talk about abnormal reasons for why babies might be big and then why we want to intervene in that situation. Yeah, no, much better way of doing it. Sorry, you have to wait another week. Well, I'm just trying to find like a natural gap in the conversation where we could kind of go, right, now we're going to go to part two. But so That's very natural. Let's do it that way. But you can hang on a week. We know you can. Of course you can. But you do have enough information to make a decision about a big baby already, okay, because we've already talked to you about fundal height and ultrasound. We had the spoiler alert. All right. (laughs) So you got a little bit. Nobody gets sad about that. So okay. So say let's let's go hypothetical. Um, you presented to your care provider. You're 36 weeks, and they say, "Mate, your baby is really small, and we need to induce you to get the baby out." This is what they do. It seems weird. People go, "So my baby's really small. So you want to get it out of me?" This doesn't make a lot of sense. What they're saying when they say your baby's small, we want to get it out of you, they think that something in your body is a danger to your baby and that they can do a better job or you can do a better job on looking after that baby when it's out instead of in. Part of it is that care providers are not very good at dealing with uncertainty. And so if your baby's out, there's a lot more certainty. They can see it. They can measure stuff. They can see how much food's going in and what's coming out and all these things. So part of it is wanting an increased level of certainty about what's going on. They're not comfortable with not knowing if or why your baby is small. And so they want to resolve it by getting it out. Um, The issue with that is that if you bring a constitutionally small baby out, unnecessarily through the process of usually induction, then you're doing that baby a massive disservice because it's already little and it needed more time in its mama to get to a full-term mature size. And so then we start to have issues of prematurity and, yeah, just smaller babies on the outside when they should be inside when they're not ready. So we increase the burden on the healthcare system by bringing these well, constitutionally well babies out early. And we know that you can't accurately diagnose a very, very small baby by ultrasound or even really by fundal height properly. So that begs the question of like, should we be bringing small babies out versus what they want to do is they want to bring the intrauterine growth-restricted babies out. That's what they're aiming for. The aim of bringing out a small baby is, is it intrauterine growth-restricted because there's something wrong on the inside? And if we can disconnect the baby from its mother, then possibly we can reduce the impact of whatever's going on in the mum's body uh, and the impact on the baby. And so that's the rationale. And there are some genuinely IUGR, intrauterine growth-restricted babies, and maybe they would do better on the outside. But the problem is, is that we can't accurately diagnose the size of a baby until it's out already. And then in hindsight, we could say, well, we're glad we got that one out or, ooh, that one was actually fine. And we've used ultrasound as a tool to make a bit, very big decision of inducing a baby that didn't need to be induced. 
And so you've got to be asking questions of your care provider of, is my baby intrauterine growth restricted? Is that what you're worried about? In which case we can do things like check placental blood flow. You can check your levels of PAPA if you had a nuchal translucency. You can do all this other screening to work out, okay, why is my baby abnormally or pathologically small? Do I have a risk factor for this? And therefore, is there a good reason to start acting and changing the gestation of when this baby is going to be born? Or have you always grown small babies? Has your mum grown small babies? What ethnicity are you? What's your diet like? Have you got a good healthy diet that's not overloading yourself with with, uh, carbohydrates and sugars and things that actually you're just growing a regular sized baby for you, a constitutionally small baby? And so I think it's important if you know as a woman no, I feel incredibly healthy. I know what I'm eating. I feel that my baby's well and that it's a normal size for me. That's important information because women do have internal information about how well their baby is. Yeah. And so that's that's what we've got to say today about small for gestational age babies and determining size. So we talked about how we work out size, and that was with the fundal height measurements and ultrasound. We also talked about the accuracy of those. So, and there'll be lots of beautiful papers in the resource folder about that. We talked about normal and abnormal reasons why you might have a small baby. And in the next episode, we're gonna we're gonna kick off straight away with uh, abnormal reasons why you might have a big baby. Uh, what people are worried about with big babies and possible things you could do if you're told that you've got a big baby on board. So that was the episode today of the Great Birth Rebellion. And we'll see you again for part two of this Small Babies, Big Babies series in next week's episode. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, Bee, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> all right.